if you would get your Bibles, please open them to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. If we begin to grasp what it means to be a creature, a part of creation, and if as creatures we are dependent, if we acknowledge that we are recipients of God's grace, then we should recognize that our pro- the appropriate attitude, the proper attitude, is that of gratitude. And yet we tend to be an ungrateful lot. I will suggest or argue in this sermon that gratitude is in fact an attitude, a disposition. One that reminds us we are not alone, that we are not solitary creatures, that we owe nothing to anyone. To be grateful is to acknowledge one's dependence. And yet, as C.S. Lewis put it, a definition of man is the ungrateful biped. We walk on two legs and yet we are ungrateful. Martin Luther wrote, nothing ages so quickly as gratitude. As people of this age, we, we see ingratitude all around us. But it isn't a modern problem. It is, I think, very much a human problem. But modern ingratitude, the ingratitude that we see in ourselves and those around us today, isn't, I think, in many ways, unique. It isn't that we don't see creation as a gift, and then we don't give thanks. Or that we are careless about giving thanks. I don't think that's the problem. The problem is I don't think we recognize reality as a gift. We don't see this as something that God has given. There are, I think, a number of reasons for this. Um, I think part of it is because of the scientific method. Everything is sort of torn apart, analyzed, dissected, and studied. And so it is seen as something to be investigated rather than something that is a gift. It is as though if you gave someone a gift of flowers, that they would not see it as a gift, but then they would then begin to analyze what, what's, what's the genus of this, you know, what's this, what is, what is the name of this particular uh, type of flower, rather than seeing it as a gift. The modern world is not so sure about the creator. Because we are who we are, we tend to be very suspicious And we have a very different view of God. We don't see God as the creator oftentimes. And we don't see him as the one who is the gift giver. We think that maybe God arbitrarily decided to make the world. um, and, and, And he plunked us here and here we are. And so the notion that it is somehow a gift is foreign to us, and if it's not a gift, then why should I be grateful? Why should I say thank you? But if we see creation as a gift, from a God who is infinitely generous, then I think gratitude is appropriate. That should be our disposition and our attitude. But do we believe that God is the giver of all? that he gives things for our good. Again, if we do, 
then um, gratitude is the proper response. Today I would like to do, once again, a meditation on gratitude. And begin by asking you a question. For all the issues that we've talked about very briefly, about our problems with gratitude, do you think of gratitude, when I say to you gratitude or thanksgiving, do you think of it as a sacrifice or as an offering? Our text today is found in Psalm 50, verse number 14. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. The ESV, the English Standard Version, reads, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and, tr- and perform your vows to the Most High. And then it has a note, an alternative reading, Make thanksgiving your sacrifice to God. And yet, as intrigued as I am, in fact, that's where I began as I was preparing my sermon with the notion of um, gratitude as a sacrifice. The NIV is actually closer to what we find in the rest of Scripture. In Leviticus chapter 7, we have instructions regarding thank offerings, offerings of thanksgiving. Let me read to you uh, Leviticus 7, verses 11 to 15. These are the regulations for the following, uh, for the fellowship offering a person may present to the Lord. If he offers it as an expression of thankfulness, Then along with this thank offering, he is to offer cakes of bread made without yeast and mixed with oil, wafers made without yeast and spread with oil, and cakes of fine flour well kneaded and mixed with oil. Along with his fellowship offering of thanksgiving, he is to present an offering with cakes of bread made with yeast. He is to bring one of each kind as an offering, a contribution to the Lord. It belongs to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the fellowship offerings. The meat of his fellowship offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. He must leave none of it till morning. So here we find the idea, the principle of the thank offering. But what, in fact, does Asaph mean here in verse number 14 when he talks about a thank offering? As I just said, Asaph wrote this psalm. It is the first of 12 psalms that are attributed to him. The other 11 are all in one block, um, 73 to 83. Um, We're not quite sure who this Asaph is. I think I know who it is, but there are a lot of men in the Old Testament who are named Asaph, but one stands out in particular. In 1 Chronicles, we are told of the events when David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and put it in the tent or the tabernacle that he had made. He, that is David, appointed some of the Levites to minister before the Ark of the Lord to make petition, to give thanks, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. That day, David first committed to Asaph and his associates this psalm of thanks to the Lord. So it seems to fit that this Asaph, who was a Levite that David had in fact put in charge of this, of giving thanks, would then write this psalm that in fact deals with giving thanks. Psalm 50 has four parts. It has an introduction, and then a part, words to a particular group. That's the second part. Then thirdly, words to another group. And then finally, we have concluding admonitions. I want to look at Psalm 50 today as we look at the question of gratitude. 
Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 1 through 6. A psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Here we would say the judge is coming. It opens with a series of titles. And because we don't do Hebrew, we have English, we may miss some of this. But he is called the Mighty One. He is called God and the Lord. The first two names are general names or generic names in the same way that we say God. Well, that's not his name. Okay, that is who he is, but that is not his name. Because there are other things that people refer to as their gods. Okay, so in that way, it's a a general or a generic name. The third, however, is his name. And in the English translation, Lord is all caps. You'll notice that. Well, when it says the Lord, this is what is put in the place of God's name, I am who I am. And some uh, translations, Jehovah and others, Yahweh. But instead of speaking God's name, because it is so sacred, they would say the Lord. And by this, they knew the God of Israel. Excuse me. So as the psalm opens, this is sort of a majestic and appropriate opening that speaks of God, who is the Mighty One, God the Lord. And seemingly it is addressed to the world at large, and then later on he deals with his chosen people. And in fact, some people have a sense that as God comes to Zion as judge, he's coming to judge the world. He tells the world, basically, this is my city, Zion, Jerusalem. You guys come here and I I will judge you. But in fact, at the end of verse number four, we find that it is his people who are on trial. God comes as judge to his people. And that they are his people is emphasized in verse number five. My consecrated ones gathered to me, my consecrated ones who made a covenant, Israel's covenant with God, with me by sacrifice. It is because of this, not in spite of this, that God, in fact, now will bring them to account. He may be reminded of what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. I think the problem we have is with the word judgment. Judgment is not the same as condemnation. Okay? Judgment, if anything, is correction. It is not the passing of a sentence, but rather to bring the truth to light. I will judge whether this is right or wrong. And if it is wrong, then it needs to be corrected. So, when we hear that judgment begins with the family of God, we're like, oh my goodness, God's mad at us more than, you know, he starts with us and then he gets mad at the rest of the world. He'll condemn us and then condemn No, that's not what judgment is. Judgment is, in fact, correction. 
And it is God in his way bringing us to a place of repentance where we're like, okay, what I was doing was wrong. I will turn from that and turn to do what is right. So it is entirely appropriate that God judges his people. In fact, one might say, it is more appropriate for God to judge his people than for him to judge the world. Because his people know his law. They are his consecrated ones. They made a covenant with him by sacrifice. They know what they should do. And if they're not doing it, then they need to be corrected. Okay? Now the two groups that are addressed in this psalm. In verses 7 to 15, we'd say that God is speaking to those who misunderstand sacrifice. They do sacrifices that are, you know, in Leviticus, all those things that are spelled out, but they misunderstand what's happening. Now, usually in the Psalms, if you read through the Psalms, it is God's people saying to God, hear us. God, hear us. We're in trouble. Um, deliver us out of our problems. But here we have God telling his people to listen to him, to hear him. It is the reverse of what we normally expect. Listen as I read verses 7 to 15. As we go along, some of these verses may be familiar to you. Probably out of context, but you know these verses. Verse 17. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Now our text, sacrifice thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. There is an issue about which God will testify against his people, but the issue is not their failure to offer sacrifices to him. Okay, verse 8, I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. They're always doing the sacrifices that, in fact, God instructed Moses and Moses instructed Israel that they should do. And I think this is important for us to see, that these people, in fact, are doing as they were commanded. The problem is their attitude. The problem is their disposition. And what is that? What is the issue? Somehow, in their minds, and I don't think they would ever say this out loud, they think God needs their sacrifices. As one writer put it, that if he did not get his daily allotment of bulls and goats, he would suffer from malnutrition. And God explains, this is simply not the case. I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens. And why is that? And this is, these are the familiar verses. For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And then he goes on in verse number 12. If I was hungry, I would not tell you. Verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Not only do they think that God needs their sacrifice, um, underneath this, a subset of this is in fact 
they think that the sacrifice in and of itself is what is pleasing to God. That what is important is the sacrifice. It's the outward observance rather than the attitude or the disposition. And there they are wrong. They're absolutely wrong. So God is judging them. He's correcting them. He's testifying against them. What is the solution? If what they're doing is wrong, what should be the right thing? Okay. They need to see their sacrifices as reminders of God's goodness. They need an attitude of gratitude. Verse 14, our text. Sacrifice, thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. In short, God does not need your worship. We need to worship God. God would still be God if no human being ever worshipped him. But we would not be truly human if we did not make an offering. You see, the sacrifices, and if you read through Leviticus, um, only one specific type of sacrifice was completely burned up on the altar. The others, a part was put on the altar, and the other part was given to the person who brought it for him to take home and eat. So part is given to God and part is for the individual. Since they're eating part of the sacrifice, somehow in their mind they may imagine that God is eating his part. And No, 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 no. The sacrifice is not food for God. It's food for thought. As you give to God, you should be thinking, this is what God has given to me, and in gratitude I am obeying and returning to him. The essence of true worship is spelled out in a sacrifice of thanksgiving and the paying or fulfilling of vows. By the way, verse number 14, I think, is important not only for what it says about thanksgiving, but for what it says about vows. Um, in the Old Testament system, uh, a person would make a vow to God. Um, and somehow we, we, we've gotten this sense, as we read it, that it is sort of a quid pro quo, that God, if you do this for me, then I will give you this thing. I make a vow, I make a bargain with you. I think it's a lot more than that. It is a recognition that God is the source of all. Otherwise, why would you make a vow to God? Why not make a vow to somebody else, to a false God? Because God is the source of all. The teacher in Ecclesiastes 5 tells his readers, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. And again, one might be tempted to think, oh, this confirms what I thought about vows, that it's some form of bribery, that somehow we're buying off God. We are bribing him to do what it is that we want. No. If you have an attitude of gratitude, then the vow is a response to God's generosity and his goodness. You will notice that this section doesn't end with verse number 14, but with verse number 15. Look at it, if you would. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. This is interesting because I think if we were writing Psalm 50, we would reverse, we would switch verses 14 and 15. Verse number 14 would be about call on me when you're in trouble and I will deliver you. Then give sacrifice of thanks and, and make a vow to God. We want to 
put calling on God in trouble before us saying thank you or being grateful. Instead, what we find is that we are to have an attitude of gratitude, of thanksgiving. It is to be the way we think rather than it to be a response to something that God has done in our lives. There is that. If God has done something, then we should be grateful. But we should always have a disposition of gratitude and thanksgiving. It is interesting to me that if we have the attitude of gratitude, of thanksgiving, this will lead us to have a sense of dependence. And when we get in trouble, there's no, there's no what should I do about this? Um, it's no, here, let me figure out, I'm in this mess, I've got to figure out a solution, and then when we can't, we finally, God, help me. No, if you have this attitude of thanksgiving, then it will, in fact, be what you do. You will call to God in a time of trouble. That's the first thing. It's your default setting. Sadly, for most of us, it isn't. We try to figure things out on our own. And that is because we lack the proper attitude. We are to acknowledge that God is the source of all, all the time. Not simply when he, quote-unquote, answers our prayers. Well, this is the first section that addresses one group of people. Now God turns to another group of people. People who are hypocrites, who pay lip service, but their lives are completely contrary to his law. One writer put it this way. If the mechanically pious folk of verses 7 to 15, we've just looked at these people, need reminding that God is spiritual, the hardened character of verses 16 to 21 must face the fact that he is moral. God has standards. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 16 to 21. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Unlike the previous group, whose actions are not called into question, here we have a group who both their attitude and their actions are called into question. The wrong attitude is seen in lip service. that They, they say one thing and they do another. What right have you to recite my law on your lips, or take my covenant on your lips? Um... I'm reminded of what we hear in Isaiah 29. It's a bit different. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is something that Jesus quotes in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. But it isn't just that. It is the wrong actions. Here we find at least three of the Ten Commandments are broken. Look at verse 18. When you see a thief, you join with him. You shall not steal. Okay. You throw your lot in with adulterers. You shall not commit adultery. And here, the way it is written is your part. Your part isn't that you're participating, but in fact, by, by not 
separating yourselves from these people, you are in fact being a part of that crowd, in a sense breaking the covenant, uh, the commandment. You harness, uh, you do not harness your, or you harness your tongue for deceit. We are told you shall not bear false witness. So these hypocrites who go to church and say these things, they take God's covenant, his law on their lips, but then their actions are the reverse of what God has commanded. They break these commandments and God is silent. Or so far he has been silent. And they misunderstand the silence. I think we all at different times misunderstand God's silence. One writer put it so well. Part of the value of God's silence is that it allows us to be ourselves and to reveal ourselves. You see, if God was always standing right over us with a stick and every time we did something wrong he would whack us, I don't know that we would have a sense of what's really in our heart. We would act more out of fear. You know, we don't want to get whacked. You know, we're always sort of flinching that God, we don't want him to hit us. But when God is silent and he backs away, <clears throat> then in a sense, who we really are in our hearts comes out. And we do the things we want to do. And like these hypocrites, these wicked people, they break God's commands. They take God's silence to mean that he is like they are. He doesn't care what they do. He doesn't care that they break his commandments. There is a note in the NIV, but also in the uh, ESV, when it says, you thought I was altogether like you. It says, you thought the I am was altogether like you. It's the name of God. I am who I am. This brings us back to verse number one where the psalm opened. We have the mighty God, God, and the Lord. I am who I am. They think somehow God, I am who I am, is like them. That he really doesn't care. whatever, Whatever they want to do, he doesn't really care. What foolishness, what folly. The reality is, I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. That is to say, in his time, God will break his silence. As he's doing, by the way, with the people who misunderstand sacrifices, he's he's speaking to them. And now, finally, he is speaking to the hypocrites. He's breaking his silence. He will rebuke them and he will accuse them. Now Asaph concludes this psalm with a warning and a promise. Verse 22, Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. These are the people that have just been addressed, the wicked, the hypocrites. You would sort of think that, okay, those who misunderstand, now we come to the conclusion, they'll be addressed first. But in fact, they're addressed second. Those who misunderstand, the hypocrites, God speaks first to the hypocrites. And he says to them, consider this. You who forget what God is really like, who he really is. Um, You imagine that God is the way that you are. You are on the path to destruction and no one will be able to rescue you. You need to think about this. 
you pay lip service to God, but then you break all his commands, or you join with those who break God's commandments. There will be severe consequences. And this, I think, is not necessarily condemnation. We talked about judgment versus condemnation. Judgment is correction. Well, correction in the early stages may be, well, I think it is less severe, but if you keep going down that path, when judgment finally comes, it will be quite severe. God will be correcting his people. And as Gia read to us today from Jeremiah, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar has already come and taken most of them off. They say to God, tell us what to do and we'll do it. He tells them and they they like, no, we don't like that. We're going to do what we want. And then God says, okay, Nebuchadnezzar came to Israel, to Judah. Guess what, folks? He's coming to Egypt. The judgment will be more severe than they could imagine. What about those who misunderstand the nature of sacrifices? He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me. Again, the ESV, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. This is true worship. It begins with an attitude of gratitude. Verse 23 continues, And he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. And again, we must be careful because I think we tend to reverse the order of things. That somehow we imagine that God gives us something because we are grateful. The giving comes from God. We receive it and we are to be thankful. And then we are to obey God. As one pastor of the 19th century put it, praise is the best sacrifice. True, hearty, gracious thanksgiving from a renewed mind. Sacrifice your loving gratitude and God is honored thereby. At this point, some might be thinking, well, Damon, that's all very nice and good, but that's the Old Testament. That's the book of Psalms, and we are New Testament people. We are people of the New Covenant. I'm not sure that that applies to us. If you would, turn, turn your, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We are to have the attitude of gratitude of thanksgiving all the time, continually, as a sacrifice, as an offering to God. But go back to chapter 12, here in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, um, verse number 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably and with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Every act, every duty of faith of God's people 
is in essence an offering, is a sacrifice. And we read the book of Leviticus and we think, boy, these people, all these animals that had to be sacrificed, everything we do is to be a sacrifice to God, is to be an offering to God. This is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. By the way, in Romans 1, we are told that ingratitude is at the heart, it is at the root of all rebellion against God. When people no longer want to say thank you to God because they don't want to, well, they don't think it came from him or they just don't want to say thank you, um, that is when rebellion begins. We are to be marked by thanksgiving. Are we surprised when we, we keep hearing these exclamations from Paul about thanksgiving? Second uh, Corinthians 9, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Colossians 3, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Second Th- or First Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, if you wish, to be the air that we breathe. As we breathe in and out, we are to be people who are grateful and who give thanks. One of the earliest of the Protestant catechisms, the Heidelberg Catechism from, I think, 1563, is divided into three sections. The third section is the longest. It deals with the Christian life and how we are to live. The title of section three of part three, Gratitude. And it's actually 52 parts for the 52 Sundays, and so every Sunday they would do one part of the catechism. So from week 32 to work fi- week 52, all comes under the heading of gratitude. This is what is to mark us as God's people. The sacrifice of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving. Earlier I asked you in this sermon, do you think of gratitude as sacrifice or as offering? Let me close with another question. Is your life marked by the sacrifice of thanksgiving? Let's pray together. Our Father, you have done everything for us. And yet, part of it is our frailty, part of it is our rebellion. We're not marked by gratitude as we should be. We are quick enough to give thanks when we get what we want but it doesn't seem it seems to be a response a reaction and not an attitude every breath we take should be marked by gratitude all we have comes from you we are to live in a spirit of thanksgiving everything we do as your people should be marked by thanksgiving. 
somehow we seem to get thank we get tired of saying thank you. We are not tired of your gifts. We're not tired of our lives. I think our problem is we see gratitude as something that we do in response rather than an attitude, a spirit, a mindset that we are to have. Forgive us for our ingratitude and may your Holy Spirit work in our hearts. And may we as individuals but as a congregation be moved be possess a spirit of thanksgiving we have so much to be thankful for above all you have made us you have saved us you are sustaining us and we should be thankful In that vein, even in small things, not so small things, Jesse has mentioned that Georgie is sleeping through the night. and This is a gift that comes from you, and we give thanks. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.